0: As we go to pray this morning, I'd like to read from Psalm 31 verses 23 and 24. O love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Father, you are the source of our hope. It is from you that we derive our strength our faith, all that keeps us going ahead in this world that is becoming more and more chaotic as the weeks and months pass. We know, Lord, that as we are able to look around the world today because of the (coughs) rapid communications uh, systems that exist, that we can be aware of of tragedy, it seems, on, on every continent and in every country. And Father, we know that overall you are in control. And we just pray that your Spirit will bring glory to your name and that many, many will be turned to Christ as, as the chaos increases in the nations of the world. Lord, we have lived in such security in this land, at least seeming security, and I trust that the wake-up call we re- recently received as a nation will not grow cold but will continue to engender amongst the population of this country a search for truth. And Father, we know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that we ask that many, many will come to him as a result, and that we who are yours will be strengthened in our faith and deepened in our commitment. Lord, bless our study today, that as we look at the scripture, it will help us to grow in that faith that you have instilled in our hearts, and to be active in serving you as you have called us to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, I'd like to read the first six verses of 1 Samuel chapter 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept, until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed, because the people spoke of stoning him, For all the people were embittered, each one, because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. As we have noted from the previous chapter, uh, David had been in a very serious situation where he had been forced to join with his Lord, I guess you could call him, with a small L, the king of Gath, in preparing for an attack on Israel. And of course, uh, David didn't want to attack Israel, and as a result, Uh, God was able to get him out of that situation by causing the other Philistine kings and generals to say, we don't want this man on our side in our army because he's liable to turncoat in the middle of the battle. And so he was sent home, sent back to Ziklag. This was uh, God's working because God had released him so that he could deal with a crisis that had occurred at Ziklag, which of course he didn't even know about. In those days, of course, you couldn't just flip out your little cell phone and catch up on the latest news from home. Uh, you couldn't plug in your email. There was, a, there was no way by which messages could be carried from one place to another except by humans, either written or, or, or spoken messages. And so it was a long way. It's 50 miles from AFEC to Ziklag, uh, which to us today, well, what does that take, you know, 45 minutes on I-5? Yeah, well, it took him over two days, of course, to walk from Aphek to Ziklag. And when his, David and his men arrived in Ziklag, they, of course, became heartbroken as they discovered that the city had been torched. Ephek up here, they had come down the road and over here to Ziklag, which was right about in there, north of Beersheba, right about in there. As they came across that area, and I described the Negev to you last time, kind of a rolling grassland, and so they were able to see that the city had been damaged long before they got there, but of course they couldn't understand the extent of it until they arrived. It's possible that some of the smoke was still rising from the ruin because the the attack had just occurred not too long before they arrived. The scripture informs us that a band of Amalekites had made the raid. Now David didn't know that, and his men didn't know that. Uh, originally, what, what had happened, just that the city had been raided as all that they knew. The passage makes the amazing point that in the raid no one had been harmed, which is just incredible when you have to think about it. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, some of whom of course would have tried to run away, some of whom would certainly have tried to resist and yet no one was harmed. God, of course, had seen to it that no one was harmed. Well, as the enormity of what had happened, just, just imagine, you are amongst this group of 600 men, you have been saved from having to go into battle against your own people because God has intervened, and you've, you've come south, you're coming home, you're looking forward to your wife and your children, and then you find ruin, how heartbroken these men really were. And as, as they looked at it, and they, they, they yelled and ran around looking for their children, their wives, and, and no one was to be found then they began thinking, well, why did this happen? Who's responsible for this? Who is responsible for this? And of course, David popped into their minds. And you know who put David's name in their minds. David was their leader. And if David hadn't been affiliated with the king of Gath, they wouldn't have been at Aphek. They'd have been here and they would have driven off the raiders. But instead, this tragedy had happened. And so they began the blame game. And we talked a little bit about the blame game last week. They were even talking about stoning David. Seems totally irrational when you think about it. They have followed this man for more than a decade. He has been a brilliant leader. He has always sought to help his men and to bless them and encourage them. I mean after all he would welcomed them into his midst in the first place and many of them were outcasts from their place in society but I suppose that partly that's what caused the trouble. Many of them were men of relatively low moral standards. Uh, as we discover the attitude of david's men here was so reminiscent of the attitude of israel back at the time you remember when the 12 spies were sent into canaan from kadesh barnea and they came back and reported and 10 of them said oh yes the land is fruitful but but there are huge walled cities that we cannot assail and there are giants in the land we recommend that we don't attack you remember that. Let me, let me just read because uh, it's such a profound statement that is parallel to what we're talking about right here in Numbers chapter 14, especially how Moses reacts. This is the key to the whole thing. How does Moses react compared to how David reacts to this situation? In Numbers chapter 14, beginning at the first b- verse, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, And the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then notice the reaction. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons. Of Israel, <laughs> That would have been a dynamic thing to have seen, not as one of the complaining sons of Israel, of course, but as a, <laughs> a believing bystander to have watched that event occur. So how did Moses and Aaron deal with the rebe- rebellion in their midst? They fell on their faces before the Lord. Moses faced the challenge by seeking the Lord, his God, and so does David, in this account we're reading. In the sixth verse we read, but the, after it had been said that the men were planning to stone David because this had been, had gone so uh, wrong, that said that, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What a powerful example this is to us. If everything seems to be imploding in our lives, And if the enemy is telling us that our situation is all our fault and that we are in a hopeless situation and there is no way out, then we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. We have to trust in his promise that he will be with us. And we can't trust in our feelings. This is, of course, one of the biggest problems we have in our society today. We have this touchy-feely society. It's how we feel about everything. You know, it started with Dr. Spock, and it's gone all the way on since then. This feeling stuff, feelings will lie to us. Feelings can easily be distorted. Our feelings can be changed just by what we had for breakfast or didn't have for breakfast. <laughs> our, our feelings will be impacted by somebody else who comes into our lives and, and is either up or down. I, I mean, you know, what can, how can we trust our feelings? We have to live by faith, not by sight. And that is, of course, what Moses chose to do, what David chose to do. We're all very familiar with the story of Job. How often is it recited? The precipitous collapse of this man until he had nothing left and he was sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping his wounds and everything was gone. And at his lowest moment, Satan spoke right through the mouth of Job's wife, and he said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's obvious that Job's wife had played the blame game, and she had decided that Job was responsible. She became embittered by the cataclysmic, losses that they had experienced, and she, she just put it all, all the blame on her husband, Job. It's your fault. Curse God and die. And by, by, by blaming and by having a heart of bitterness, she opened the door to Satan to work through her, to speak through her, and she became a tool of the evil one. But the scripture tells us that Job strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. And what did God do? God not only restored his health, but restored everything that he had lost, even to a greater extent than before. In fact, he became more wealthy and esteemed than he had ever been before in his life. Why? Because he trusted in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He didn't play the blame game, and he wasn't intimidated by the voice of the evil one. God did the same for Moses, and God in this situation does the same thing for David. There is, of course, a powerful spiritual principle here. It's a principle by which we must live because no matter how well things might be seeming at the particular moment, we know there are going to be bumps in the road and every once in a while there's a giant crack in the road in which we can fall into. But as illustrated in the lives of David and Moses and Job and many others in the scripture, there is a principle that is most clearly proclaimed in one of the most frequently quoted passages from the Minor Prophets. Not too many of us uh, turn to the Minor Prophets for our uh, help. But you all know this passage from the third chapter, chapter of Habakkuk, where we read these words in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, and though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like the hind's feet, and he makes me to walk on high places." That first phrase of verse 19 is the key to successfully living this life, no matter what the ups and the downs are like, to take the Lord God as my strength. Life is going to be full of ups and downs. And when you look at what we're talking about here, you and I can say, well, uh, things are tough, but I can always go to the mission. Uh, Things are tough, but I can always get food stamps. Things are tough, but there's always food in the stores. But you look at the situation we're talking about here, if the fig trees fail, if the vines fail, there's no crop in the food in the field and no cattle in the fold, there was nowhere to go. There were no stores in those days. There were no missions in those days. There were no food stamps in those days. If the food wasn't there, the food wasn't there and you had nothing to eat. We seem to have a lot of backups in our society, which is good, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. But we as believers cannot trust in those things to be our primary backup because the Lord has got to be our strength in each and every situation. Now, He may use those things to provide for us and to help us, and that's perfectly good. But our faith cannot be placed in those things, but in God Himself. And so it would be for David. As we read on in uh, the 30th chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 7, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to me, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and you shall surely rescue all. So David went, he and his six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and four hundred men, For two hundred were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor and remain behind." You may remember that Saul destroyed the priests of Israel. He destroyed the house of Eli. The only surviving member that was a descendant of Eli was the man mentioned in this passage here, Abiathar, and he had fled from the uh, Nob where the priests were living and had fled into David's camp for safety. And when he fled, he had the presence of mind to grab the ephod of the high priest and take off with it and carried it off into David's camp. And so he has the ephod uh, that was worn by the high priest, which had the little pockets in which were the Urim and the Thummim. So David had those available to him. And so he had a priest in his camp, and he had the ephod with the Urim and the Thummim right there in his camp, and he so called Abiathar, Come to me. I I need some direction here. I want you to seek the Lord through the process of the Urim and the Thummim. So what we have is David asking the questions and Abiathar doing whatever was involved here that was never given to us in detail, how the uh, Urim and Thummim were used. They definitely weren't eyeglasses used to read golden plates, however, which if you uh, don't know the story... (laughs) That's how Joseph Smith uh, read the Golden Plates uh, and uh, came up with the Book of Mormon, which um, is not probably what the Urim and Thummim were. David was able, through this process, to determine what to do in this particular situation. What is interesting is to note the contrast. Remember, uh, we we read about Saul in in a previous chapter recently, and and Saul consulted the Urim and the Thummim and uh, got no answer whatsoever from God. It was absolute dead silent. Now, how exactly that works, we don't know. But he heard nothing from God. And here we have David, and he seeks God, and he gets an immediate response. This is what I want you to do, David. This is what's going to happen, David. The contrast between the two men could not be greater. Saul had assumed that if he followed the, quote, proper procedure, that God would have to respond regardless of Saul's own personal heart towards God. The hardness of his heart, the unrepentant attitude of his heart. That that was irrelevant because he was going to work the, the system and therefore God was going to have to respond. And of course, God did not. But David came to God with a humble heart, a repentant heart, and God immediately heard from him. Obviously, religious rituals have meaning only if the heart is right before God. Now, of course, into your mind has probably popped the question How did Saul consult the Urim if Abiathar had it in David's camp? And that's a good question. And I want you to know the commentators do not agree (laughs) as to how that could be. Uh, It does seem like a dilemma. But Delich, the old German commentator from over 100 years ago, who's really pretty rock solid in, in most of uh, Kyle and Delich in their uh, commentaries, uh, argue that the most logical explanation is that Saul had simply appointed a new high priest and that the new high priest, in order to function, had had a new ephod and new Urim and Thummim made. And therefore, this was the Thummim, Irum and Thummim, that uh, Saul had consulted, not the genuine one, not the one that came from the days of Moses out in the wilderness, but the one that was recently made to serve the newly appointed high priest that Saul had had appointed. So it could be that Saul's problem of an of a unrepentant heart, of a hard heart, was compounded by the fact that he was trying to seek God through a man who was not the anointed high priest and through Urim and Thummim, which were not the genuine Urim and Thummim that had been appointed by God through Moses so many hundreds of years before. The instruction of the Lord to David was to pursue the raiders, he not only commanded him to pursue the raiders, but he said, you will overtake the raiders and you will rescue absolutely everything. Ooh, pretty amazing thought. Well, David quickly related what he had found out from the Lord to his men. Oh, by the way, guys, before you stone me to death, let me tell you what the Lord has said. We're going to pursue the raiders and we're going to overtake the raiders and we're going to recover everything all of the wives and all of the children and all of the goods. And so his men stopped and thought, probably it's better to pursue and rescue than to take our wrath out on stoning David. Probably be the better thing to do. And so they wisely chose to allow David to lead them, to organize them, prepare them, and for them to set out in pursuit of this raiding band. I don't think they waited long. I don't think they sat down and and dug through the rubble to try to find out if anything was still left. I think what they were concerned about were, were their wives and their sons and their daughters. Scripture clearly tells us that that is true. And so I think on the very same day, once they had figured out what had happened here, and once they had, David had consulted the Urim and Thummim, that the very same day, which was the third day after they had left Aphek, they're on the way. They're on the trail. They're heading out to see if they cannot overtake this band of raiders. Now, they didn't know who they were pursuing because the scripture tells us they were Amalekites, but it doesn't say that David and his men knew that that's who they were trailing. They will follow the trail. I I kept this map up here because it shows the, the region over here in which the Amalekites generally lived at that time. So they left from Ziklag here and they went to the southwest. Now, you can't see it very well here, but there's a ravine through here. In this part of the world, there are two types of uh, ravines. One is a wadi, which is an Arabic word for a ravine, in which flows an intermittent creek or river. The Wadi can be dry as much as it can have water in it. And then there is also the nahal, which is the Hebrew word for generally considered a perennial stream, a flowing stream. This would definitely be a wadi, because the only time there would be water in the brook Besor would be if it happened to be raining in, in the Negev, because there, there were no snowy peaks or anything else to provide water to flow through this area on a perennial basis. And so they would come to this ravine, and you, you don't just, it's not like a little creek or a little brook that flows through some little flat place, you just walk right on across it. Usually in this dry country, uh, the rivers when they flowed, the creeks when they flowed, cut ravines, which had to be crossed. And so they came to the ravine of the brook Besor and uh, had to cross the ravine before they continued on in the direction. uh, Remember, they're starting from way over here. Now, had they been way out on the Via Maris, or the way of the sea here, Had they went out there, then crossing the brook Besor would have been easy because it's out on the flat plain there and there is no ravine to speak of uh, there. But they're way over here, so they have to cross the ravine and then they're headed in this direction. Here's the way of shore, which is a secondary route. This is the main route through the region. This is a secondary route. The Amalekites probably were headed in this direction down this way. And so David set out with his men to pursue them in that particular, along that particular route. They were moving very quickly. It's about 15 miles from Ziklag to the brook, uh, the ravine there. And what we're told in this passage is that when they finally got to the ravine, one third of his force was too exhausted to go on. I mean, they had just marched all the way from Aphek down to Ziklag. They had experienced this terrible emotional downer By discovering the city uh, destroyed, the town destroyed, and all their people gone, and now forced marching for another 15 miles, 200 of the 600 just simply had no reserves left. They were just exhausted, and they dropped there at the ravine. And David chose not to stop and say, okay, guys, we're all going to rest here for a while. We're all going to pull out our food and eat a little, drink a little. Get ourselves, rest a little, let's take a few hours of rest and then we're going to move on. David is in a hurry. (laughs) And so he says, who can continue the process? 400 of the men are ready. So he says, the other guys, you stay here, you watch the goods and we'll take off and we'll continue the pursuit. David wanted to overtake the Amalekites as quickly as possible. So they would have as little time as possible to rape the women to misuse the, uh, the, the other captives, to, to destroy the animals or eat the animals that belonged to them, or use up or waste any of the goods that had been taken. And of course, David was particularly driven by his concern for Ahinoam and Abigail, his two wives. Verse 11 of 1 Samuel 30, Now they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burn Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. After they had crossed the brook, the 400, with David, and they were moving very quickly along the route that they believed was the route the Amalekites had taken, one of David's men spotted a body laying out in the field, lying out in the field. So they ran over there to, to the individual, and they discovered he was still alive. And so they carried him, drug him, however they got him. They, they brought him to David. The scripture tells us that he had been without food or water for nearly three days. He had started out sick. That's why he'd been left behind, and it didn't wasn't a cold, obviously. Um, he was sick enough that he couldn't carry out his, his functions. so his master says, well, just, just get out of here leave you here because you're useless to me. And so he had been sick to start with, and now three days and three nights without food or water, lying out there exposed to the elements. The guy was in pretty bad shape, undoubtedly. But David hoped to gain some intelligence from this guy. And so he plied him with, wa- with food and water. The scripture tells us they, they gave him bread, fig cake, raisins, clusters, and water. Uh, as as food to try to revive him. What you have there is a description of the sea rations of that day, you know? When an army was was moving, th- this was the food they carried with them. You know, this is something that you could eat while you're still moving. You didn't have to sit down and cook it. It's, it's dried and, you know, you can eat it as you're moving along. It's something that is high in carbohydrates so that you can get energy when you need it. And, of course, it does not spoil very easily at all. Now, bread tends to get a little bit moldy, but, you know, brush the mold off, it's okay. But the figs and the raisins, they'll last forever. I think I've mentioned to you before that when they did some of the archaeological work on the top of Masada, they they found uh, figs that were stored there on the top of Masada in in one of the the crevices there that had been there for 2,000 years. And the figs were, uh, you know, maybe not exactly uh, delicacies, but they were still edible. Because it's so dry there. That dried fruit just stays dried. And, you know, doesn't, doesn't really decay. So, obviously, these were the good kinds of things to carry along. You know, if you're an advancing army, even though armies have in history herded animals along with them, that's a pretty slow way to move. You know, and they have to butcher them and cook them and feed your, feed your army. This is for a rapidly moving band uh, such as David had. Well, the, the fellow was revived by the food and the water. Uh, his energy began to res- be restored to him. And I think God touched him. I really do. I don't know what his sickness was. It couldn't have been a very mild illness of some sort. Uh, I think God touched him and he was able to respond to the interrogation. Not only was he able to respond to the interrogation, but he goes with David as they try to catch up with the ban. And David, of course, discovers he was an Egyptian. That that is very, very likely, you know. And this is Egypt right here. And the Sinai Peninsula was more than not claimed by Egypt throughout most of history. And the Amalekites were a wandering band that could be found anywhere in, in this region in through here. But for them to have an uh, Egyptian servant, oh, very, very likely such a scenario here. And he said, I, "I'm a servant of one of the Amalekites' uh, raiders, and that I'd been left behind because I was sick and unable to perform my duties." And so just as David had hoped, this man was able to refine, to provide him with certain information. He said. I belong to the band of raiders that raided the Negev of the, uh, of the Karathites and the Negev of Judah, particularly the region uh, that belonged to the Calabites. Bingo. I've got a man who was with those very raiders and he confirms who did it. It's all we need right now. Somebody come forward and say, Osama did it. You know, no more... <laughs> weaseling around here about the whole thing. The carathites Robert. Oh, what's your opinion on uh, David's casualties in, 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 uh, in his battles? Okay, like, like we have the issue of Joshua lost some at Ai. Not only did jo- uh, David not lose any battles, did, was his casualties none? Or did they not mention them? What do you think? Yeah, they don't mention them. It, first of all, most of the battles which David fought are only mentioned obliquely. Uh, we're simply told that David led the forces of Saul to battle. It doesn't say what the battle was. It doesn't always say who the enemy was. It doesn't say what the losses were on the side of Israel. Uh, generally speaking, losses on the side of Israel are only mentioned when God has intervened and said, you guys have really been a bunch of jerks, and therefore, whap." you know, as you mentioned, AI. That kind of thing is about the only time we have any mention of battle casualties on the part of Israel. We have to assume, well, maybe we don't have to, but I would assume that in any battle, even if God was with Israel, there probably were some casualties on the part of Israel. there Because we, we did read in one instance where the Israelites had suffered absolutely no casualties at all. But that was specifically mentioned that that was true. So I would assume that somewhere in between, but, but David with his 600 men here, I, I think the number 600 is a rounded off number, of course. Secondly, I think that David was probably receiving reinforcements frequently. People would come in, say, hey, I like this guy David, I'm sick and tired of the situation I'm living in now, and so I'm going to go off and join David. And so, you know, even if he suffered some losses here and there, I believe they were replaced. The scripture doesn't give us all details, as you probably are well aware of by now, about many things. Because they're not important to understanding the narrative. Even though we, Greek-oriented thinkers, want to know all those details, you know. That's why we like historical fiction. Because the writer fills in all the gaps that history has in it, you know, the writer comes along and says, well, what would have so-and-so said to so-and-so, what would Napoleon have said to Josephine in this particular situation, you know? There was no one there to actually record the conversation, so the writer just kind of fills it in. And, and so historical fiction is more popular than actual <laughs> historical narratives uh, for that reason in our society. Even in the apocryphal gospels back like second and third century, first, second, yeah, second and third century, and fill in the gaps, particularly on Jesus' childhood, you know, where the Gospels are silent. Yeah, where he flowers pop up in his footsteps or something. <laughs> know this playmate says something sarcastic to him. He falls, the playmate falls down and dies. <laughs> Sounds like something Genghis Khan might have done, but, but not Jesus. This whole region down here, as you see the word Negev here, as I've highlighted to you before, the Negev simply means the Southland. And so we're we're dealing with this area from Hebron up here. Hebron's at the top of the ridge. And after you pass Hebron, the the, the mountain ridge begins to taper off. The hills of Judean hills begin to taper off and sink down to the lower elevations of the Negev. And so you're coming downhill from Hebron here towards Arad. Uh, Here it's getting lower and then out into the Negev here itself. 'er Be'er is out on the edge of the Negev. It's pretty flat around there. If you go to the well of Abraham, there's an actual well there that's still believed to be the well of Abraham. It's not in the modern city. The modern city, you can see off in the distance, the modern city of Beersheba. But, so they're down in this dry region here. So the Negev of the Carathites, the Karathite, the term Karathite is usually associated with the Philistines. The origin of the word is, is debated, but usually always associated to the Philistines. So, raided the area of the southern part of the Philistine territory and the southern part of the Judean territory, particularly that of Caleb. Now, remember, Nabal was was a Calebite. And so those towns that were south of Hebron along the ridge here, where David was hiding out in the wilderness, Maon and those places, that was the Negev of the Calebites. And so those are the areas which are raided. And what interesting is, he specifically mentions the torching of Ziklag. And he mentions the burning of no other town. What does that mean? Well, I think there's two possibilities. First of all, it could have been that Ziklag was the only town that was burned. If that is true, we have to believe that the raid had been a retaliatory raid. That it had been perpetrated because David had attacked the Amalekites in previous months. And now they're striking back at him and, you know, attacking some other areas at the same time. But together they burn his town and carry off all of his people. The other possibility is, of course, that the writer of 1 Samuel doesn't care about the burning of any other towns. The key town here is Ziklag. That's the, the focus of the whole thing. So we only mention Ziklag, whereas other towns may have been burned but are not mentioned at all in the passage, whatever the case. David knew that he was hot on the trail of the culprits. However, the area we're talking about here, all through here, all the way across to here, is an area where nomadic bands have roved for thousands of years back and forth across here. What is truly amazing to to us today is to stop and think that people out here live as they have lived for 6,000 years. The lifestyle of many of these people hasn't changed at all. That's why people keep talking about, you know, bombing Afghanistan and what do you going to do, bomb Afghanistan back into the Stone Age, you know, because they're not much advanced above the Stone Age there in, in much of their infrastructure in Afghanistan. And, and they've been just simple farming people and nomadic people in Afghanistan for a very, very long period of time. And so they have in much of this part of the world. And so, with all these groups that have passed through there, how do you know if you're on the trail of the people who, re- who, who attacked Ziklag? I mean, there are hoof prints, and and sheep have hooves too, I guess, don't they? Whatever. Uh, all those marks made by the animals all over the place. So, how do you know? Well, I guess the dropping is a little warmer here than over there. I don't know. Uh, some way like that to tell the, the route that you're going, is it the right one? So David was concerned that he might lose the trail. So we have an Egyptian whom he has captured who now will be his guide. Brad? One thing I noticed when you said three days, this guy's been on under- no supplies for three days, and conveniently he's still alive. When David comes by, I just thought that was interesting. You said it got it, possibly touched him, I just... Probably that would be true, wouldn't it? Because if, if three days is the maximum limit and a guy was sick to start with, <laughs> probably for him the maximum would have been less than three days, yeah, right? he probably wouldn't have survived. He probably was already dehydrated anyways. And because he was a servant, it's unlikely that they spared extra supplies. They just dropped yeah, really right. him off and left him. Probably wanting him to die so that he wouldn't be able to tell if somebody did find him. But not willing to actually kill him. <laughs> let God kill him. Yeah, that's, that's a good uh, insight, Brad. So anyway, David asked him to lead them to the place where he thought the Amalekites might be. Now, he had been living with the Amalekites for all these years, so he knew where their haunt was. And so he would be able to, to lead them. And the Egyptian said, I will do it, providing you will provide me security. You will neither kill me nor give me back to my master, who would certainly kill him. And probably in a, not a very pleasant manner. And therefore, uh, David, of course, it's it's implied that David makes the promise, even though it doesn't say so, uh, because he does lead them uh, on, and they do find the Amalekites. Because of the lateness of the hour, I don't want to uh, move any further here, because I want to say something, I I think, uh, a truth that we can derive out of this Egyptian-David relationship that can speak to us uh, today about God's leading.